Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode seven of the Mercuranians podcast. Today is Wednesday, April 27th. It is 2.44 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. My name is Stella. And my name is Cam. And today we're going to be recording the seventh episode of the Mercuranians podcast. And we're going to be talking about the nodes, the lunar nodes. Yes, yes. So with eclipse season right on the horizon, coming right up quicker than we even know. I know. By the time you guys hear this, the we'll have um we'll have had the solar eclipse happen yesterday. If you're listening to this on Sunday, May first. Yes. Um, so yeah, we wanted to um just talk about the nodes, um as sort of an introduction to talking about eclipses, which we'll have to do another full episode on them because there's a lot to say about that. So we're just going to kind of um, do an introduction to the lunar nodes, the history of the nodes, um, their, you know, methods of interpretation of the nodes kind of through the tradition um, from the Hellenistic to the medieval to the modern era. And also we're going to have a, you know, discussion about the point of view of the nodes from Indian astrology as well. Um, even though, you know, neither of us particularly specialize in it, um, there it's, it's a super important discussion because uh, you know, that tradition brings a really rich interpretation to the nodes in. So we definitely want to talk about that as well. Yeah, definitely. And the nodes have had some pretty conflicting and like very different um, attitudes around them over the years throughout different traditions and different time periods. So we're not going to go like super far into detail about the evolution of their interpretations, but we're still definitely going to be bringing up some traditional attitudes and maybe where those attitudes have been um, changed and adapted over the years. Yeah. So um, I feel like, you know, just to start talking about the nodes, um, thinking about how these are, you know, not physical objects they are points that are calculated in the sky you know right um yeah and so this is part of the reason why we wanted to do this episode now um kind of backtracking a little bit to eclipse season and why we mentioned that is because the nodes directly portray the relationship between the orbit of the sun and the moon and or earth around the sun and our perceived orbit of the sun um and those relationships are what cause eclipses right so basically the the moon's you know orbiting the earth and even though the sun from our perspective is following the ecliptic which is a perfect um you know horizontal line that circles the earth the moon is just ever so slightly tilted above that it's just five degrees a little over five degrees so that actually makes these really two precise points on either end where we get that intersection between the sun's ecliptic and the moon's orbital um, track around the earth. So those two intersection points are the north and south nodes of the moon or the ascending and descending nodes of the moon or the head of the dragon and the tail of the dragon. Um, There's a lot of different terminology for these that have been um, used throughout the tradition. So, but yeah, they're really these magical points where we have the intersection of the sun and the moon. So it's a really magical phenomena and they open a whole gateway into all kinds of realms of interpretation through astrology. 
yeah just there's so much that can be said about them and especially because there's so many different techniques around them Mm -hmm. and their interpretations have evolved into so many different branches there's really a lot of information that you might be able to glean from them sure some of these techniques you might not agree with but other ones might really resonate with you Yeah, so typically when the moon passes between the sun and earth, we have a new moon. But when that passing is through a node or when the moon passes between the intersection of the ecliptic and the moon's orbit, we have an eclipse. And so it'll show up like a conjunction in a natal chart between the sun, the moon, and the node, whether it be north or south. Yeah, and so, you know, when we're looking at a chart and we see... um a kind of conjunction like that with the sun and the moon and the node that's only one half of the way this alignment could happen because the other way is when we have the equivalent of a full moon on the nodal axis so we know that if you're looking at a chart and you see the sun and the moon in opposition that's implying that you know the earth is essentially in the middle of the chart and that the sun is illuminating its light completely onto the moon But what happens when that kind of alignment is directly on top of the nodal axis is that it creates this like perfect line of sight for all of these planets to align up in a straight um, direct path where the earth will actually perfectly cover the sphere of the moon and this will turn into a lunar eclipse. So we have basically, you know, the new moon and then when that happens on a node, it's a solar eclipse. If we have a full moon and that's happening on the nodal axis, then it becomes a lunar eclipse. So um, it it really, I think, just goes to speak to the really intricate way everything was kind of all designed around us and and how perfectly these things line up, you know, with the difference in size between the sun and the moon. Right. And then they're both respectively from our perspective on Earth. They appear the same size in outer space. Like, come on. Right. So... (laughs) I mean, I was just going to say, like, the eclipses is, like, the nodes just serve the purpose of seeing the beauty of how intricately it was all designed. Right. And then also, if you have not been exposed to the mechanics behind um, eclipses and the nodes, and you are having a hard time following this, like, do not worry at all. And if you're new to this world of the mechanics behind some of these celestial phenomena, um, do not worry if you are having a hard time kind of conceptualizing it and following it. A lot of that stuff just comes with time and experience. Um, If you have any kind of software that's like Astro Gold or anything like that, setting the nodes on the ascendant and watching just some of the interactions between them, whether you do that as you listen through this episode, that might help you or just on your own time. I'm sure there's like videos out there that really clearly display what a solar and lunar eclipse look like from outer space. So try, don't, don't worry if you, if your mental picture isn't complete yet. Yeah, it's definitely pretty tricky to visualize if you haven't kind of seen like the astronomical diagrams of, of how it's kind of all working together. Because when you're just looking at like a, a, an astrological chart, it's pretty easy to just point out like, okay, here's the north and south node. They're always 180 degrees opposite from each other. And we've got both luminaries on one of them. And that's a solar eclipse. Or, you know, they're in opposition on both nodes and that's turning into like a lunar eclipse. So seeing the chart is easy, but then understanding, you know, what's happening with like the tilt of these orbits and how the intersections happen. It's a little bit more complex, but if you can um, 
find some like astronomical diagrams, like type in like lunar node, um, you know, eclipse um, diagram on Google or something. There's tons and tons of pictures that can kind of help align the visual for that. Yeah, and there's a lot of pictures that kind of um, convey what there's some that are more astronomy based where it's showing you what is happening physically in outer space. And then there's others that are more astrology based that really convey what it looks like from our perspective on earth. Mm -hmm. So seek out those resources. Um, yeah, and so then a uh, solar eclipse is going to be the moon passing in front of the sun. So we're not going to be able to see it. If it's during the day, there's different locations on Earth where it's more visible than others, but it casts this shadow, and it's the moon's shadow that passes across Earth. And it, it in ancient times, like, how ominous was that? Like, can you imagine if you had no idea what an eclipse was? And then, like, every year, like, a couple times out of the blue, like, before they tracked the stars or right. anything like this. Like, I love, like, imagining, like, the terror that was just incited into people, like, when eclipses would be happening and, like, people who, you know, didn't know that they would happen or you know, before, like, like you said, before they were tracking it, like just the kind of awe and terror that that would inspire. And like, that's so much of the reason why the nodes act in such a malefic nature, um, you know, in astrology is because that's what's happening astronomically, right? They're eating up the sun or the moon. Like that's a very negative thing. Right, right. Imagine watching the sunset with like this blackened circle, like in the center of it, and you can only see the ring. Like, are you do you, can you count on the sun rising the next morning like that right. whole night would just be terrifying yeah yeah I mean, it's like astrology is all about light like astrology is the science of light you know when planets lose their light by combustion by being near the sun you know that's that's one of the worst you know afflictions that can happen to a planet so when we're talking about the sun losing light you know or the moon losing light or i guess you know it, it, it on a lunar eclipse it kind of becomes darker and blacker and then it goes to the full red but you know it's the same idea of you know these are our lights the sun and the moon they never lose their light and so in the eclipses they do and it's on it's just these two factors of holy shit they're losing their light but also holy crap they can align perfectly in order that it's like you know back in the day of course they believed and understood how to commune with these celestial beings because the sun and the moon were the perfect thing, you know, and now it's like, it's a whole debate about, you know, science, but I think eclipses, the total solar eclipse is one of the most beautiful ways you can, you know, stand in the perfection of the moment of creation and, and witness that alignment of all of the bodies in perfect harmony. Yeah, definitely. And like the phenomena of eclipse were like some of the first things that were studied and tracked and tried to understood from like an astrological perspective like mm. way back in the ancient era like that was one of the most prominent things that they had and like these are all the reasons why yeah i mean the babylonians were tracking sorrow series way before um you know they had almost you know any of you know hellenistic astrology developed in all of those interpretive methods they were just calculating you know how far apart are these things happening trying to develop the basis for just the cycle the cyclical period of of it um and so you know the nodes they have an 18 
year cycle where they're coming back to the same degree. And I think that's another really interesting factor here too, is that number. I agree. I agree. Um, so for anyone who does not know those sorrow cycles that um, you mentioned, did you want to talk about those? Just touch on them, explain what it is. Yeah. We're going to have a future episode where we go into detail on eclipses and what's really going on with all of them, but we have to introduce this, of course. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, so really quickly, you know, the sorrow cycle is pretty much um, along with the metonic cycle, the most basic kind of cycles that come from the eclipses, and they just come from that 18-year nodal cycle. So every 18.6 years, those nodes come back, they make a full return, and that's going to link up the series of eclipses that happen around that time when they're coming back to those places. Yeah, yeah, definitely. For those of us, however, who have not been around for full cycles, for younger people or who have only had one nodal return or anything like that, um, we're left with just the nodes to really interpret when it comes to an eclipse, you know? And so um, traditionally, the nodes were treated as highly, highly malefic in in specifically in Indian astrology, where both Rahu and Ketu were profound malefics, and then Ketu even more so. Yeah, and so Rahu and Ketu are the, the names in Vedic astrology for the north node, which is Rahu, and Ketu, which is the south node. So um, yeah, you know, it's interesting that the transmission of, of information that kind of happened and how those spread along because the Indians were tracking the eclipse cycles before um, a lot of the transmission of Hellenistic astrology had gone to India, but they still did have like a really profound kind of cross influence on each other. So pretty much from the Hellenistic period, their interpretation of the nodes was, I mean, pretty basic. Like when you look at it in terms of how like modern astrologers and evolutionary astrologers really dive into using the nodes, um, to making really profound statements about um, the stages of one's spiritual journey um, and even to the extent of stating things about like past lives or you know past life karma and how we're kind of you know playing things out again this lifetime that's really how you know evolutionary astrology interprets the nodes but that was something that's coming to the tradition extremely recently um, from hellenistic astrologers from from a hellenistic astrologer's point of view the north node was its function was simply to increase things and the south node's function was simply to decrease things um so yeah it's had a total evolution along the way really yeah yeah and um a lot of like new age ideas are overlapping with the nodes in astrology and ideas like you were saying of like karma and like past life karma and like using the south node to like do past life regressions and stuff like that like I cannot stress enough like how new that is mm -hmm. and like especially in like the Indian tradition when that is who is attributed that's where that like idea is attributed to have come from in the western tradition so like we have this like modern western astrology that's saying oh like 
Indian astrology says that the nodes, the south node will tell you about your past life and your past life karma. And then Indian astrology just like did not really say that. And there are Indian astrologers today who I'm sure do practice that, but that was never really a root of like Indian or any Vedic tradition that we really know of. Mm -hmm. It's, it's their like religious and spiritual philosophy, but that was kind of just smushed onto the revival of astrology in the West around the early 1900s through, you know, the spiritualist movement and the theosophical movement. And that kind of all swept into like the dregs of what was left of astrology after the Renaissance and after it had really died out. So it was just up to those like early astrologers, like in the late 1800s and early 1900s who infused kind of all of those foreign concepts with, like I said, what was left, the small amount of tradition that had remained um, because so much of it had been lost. And that kind of warped into this um, practice of evolutionary astrology to what it is now. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I have nothing against evolutionary astrologers. You know, that's how I, I think, like many people have their introduction to, you know, astrological interpretation. And personally, I just don't use the nodes like that anymore. But I'm not saying you can't or that it's wrong. It's just a different style that, you know, uh, was developed more recently. Right. Um, and... I, I agree. There's nothing wrong with practicing evolutionary astrology or anything like that. Yeah. But I also think that um, recognizing cultures for who they are independently of your own perceptions, if you want to go study Indian astrology and Indian philosophy, and you decide to synthesize these two fields and look into something else with astrology, that's totally okay. But it's unfair to Indian cultures and traditions to say that you learned that from their tradition when you didn't really, and that could be misportraying something else that you just don't know about. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was, that was, a lot of what happened where it was just misportrayal right and i think the other whole kind of issue that some people are having with like at least how evolutionary astrologers might go about interpreting the nodes is kind of related to both traditions in indian and the earlier roots of the astrological tradition in medieval and hellenistic period because it kind of seems to be completely reversed to how evolutionary astrologers might go about interpreting what the north node does in your chart and what the south node does because you know when we were talking originally at the beginning of the episode about how this is you know the interest they represent the intersection of the moon's orbit and the sun's ecliptic that north node or the ascending node when the moon crosses that it's essentially going above the sun's ecliptic so if you went out in the sky the moon even though we don't see it at the daytime or during daytime the moon would visually be above in the northern uh, celestial half, sorry, the northern half of the celestial sphere. So the ecliptic marks just the halfway point. And then when it's above that, you know, the moon will have crossed the north node. Then the other side, when it crosses the south node or the descending node, the moon would visually be below the sun. So what we can gather from that is kind of how on the north node, the moon is gaining power over the sun because it's increasing in latitude above it. But then after it crosses the south node, it's going below it and the sun is reigning supreme. So yeah, do you wanna talk kind of about the implications of? Yeah, we can talk about that. I did just kind of wanna repeat that again for anyone in the audience listening, because again, this might be a more challenging episode to conceptualize. So the sun is gonna pass through the ecliptic. That's gonna be the middle point from our perception. 
when the moon is passing over the north node, it will be above the middle point. When it is passing, pa when it is passing beyond the south node, it'll be below the middle point. Mm -hmm. And so the sun is the middle point there. Right. I, I just thought that that was worth mentioning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's a, it's great you do emphasize that because that's the whole point of of what like we're trying to talk about and demarcate the distinction between because when the moon crosses Rahu or the North node, you know, like I was saying, it's gaining power over the sun. So it's increasing the idea of physicality and the body and, and physical manifestation, like all those things we talked about with the moon. And then when it crosses the South node, that's when, you know, the sun will be higher in latitude and the solar themes take prominence and the moon's power, like is it's loses its strength in a way. And so in that, in that sense, the North node is actually, interpreted in you know indian astrology as in rahu as where you know material acquisition is emphasized or where you know greed in a sense can be in um you know uh greed greed consumption um just activity um popularity is another theme that comes up in a couple different places of the chart mm -hmm. um with the north node or rahu um, and I think it's really interesting that that um, attitude comes across because some Indian traditional astrologers or just traditions say that Rahu is exalted in Taurus, whereas like a vast majority of other places say that Rahu and the North Node are exalted in Gemini, in the Gemini Sag axis. But um, with the idea of materialism and the moon's exaltation in Taurus, you can kind of see why it would make sense for Rahu or the North Node to mm. do well in a sign like Taurus. Right. Yeah, I feel like, you know, just as we're talking in the scope of just the perspective from Indian astrology, Rahu kind of relating to everything about the impulse towards physical incarnation and manifestation. And then on the opposite side of that, K2 being about the release from the bondage of physicality, right? So the moon or fortune or physicality losing its strength and then the energy going there to the sun or Helios or the mind or the soul and the intellect. And so K2 in you know, Indian astrology, it's interpreted as this point where we seek illumination or liberation from physicality. You know, it's kind of seen as our gateway into release from you know, moksha, from samsara. And, uh, you know, that's just really opposite to how an evolutionary astrologer might look at it as, you know, the South Node, they say that's where old habits are. That's what's holding us back. And the North Node is where we're supposed to head. So it's really interesting how, you know, two astrologers would look at the same chart and actually make completely opposite statements about where you're supposed to head, you know, spiritually. So that can be kind of conflicting. Yeah, definitely. And I think that the conflicting and just like, inconsistent nature of the like archetypes and like energies surrounding the nodes like really speaks to mm. its energy itself yeah. the fact that we have these retrograde and direct stations like so frequently and inconsistently mm. and which we will be talking about soon um, but the fact that we have that so often, and then we have all of this confliction and like different ideas that just cannot coexist at the same time, mm -hmm. they, they, it, it really speaks to the nature of these nodes and they can be kind of divisive. Yeah. I mean, the nodes are interesting because 
the other thing we haven't talked about yet is that they move backwards through the zodiac compared to all of the other planets which move, move forward in zodiacal order. So from Aries to Taurus to Gemini, the nodes move from Aries to Pisces to Aquarius to Capricorn. So they are moving in this complete oppositional nature to the flow of all of the other planets. Right. And like, that's not just weird. Like that is discordant. Mm -hmm. Like that is like somebody driving on the wrong side of the road. Mm -hmm. And like, that's part of why like this nodal axis has also been seen as so like almost reckless and like consumption, consumptive and just challenging. Yeah. Whether it's challenging you or itself. Yeah. You know, Valens even says like that the nodes as they're moving through a sign that they like their nature is breaking down the power of that sign because they're moving backwards. So it's really interesting to think about how they're kind of going in and, and have this really destru destructive and, you know, chaotic energy that is so alarming because, you know, like we talked about, they're responsible for the death of the lights. And um, that's also really speaks to, you know, the, the names they were given throughout the tradition, which are the head of the dragon as the North Node and the tail of the dragon. And, uh, you know, there's a lot to say about the mythology there, but at the basic level, the dragon, the constellation Draco, um, it's one of the circumpolar constellations, which means in the sky, it's wrapped around the it's wrapped around the North Star, Polaris. So it never actually sets. Even though our stars change from summer to winter, those circumpolar stars always are in the sky. The ancient Egyptians called them the indestructibles because they were seen as so divine. They never descended below the horizon, even in the wintertime. So Draco is one of these indestructible constellations. And so it was seen as wrapping around the whole axis of the entire you know, celestial sphere and its head and tail being the head of the dragon as the north node and the tail of the dragon as the north node kind of spitting things in and out of existence through its chaotic and destructive and unpredictable way. Draco was this really, um, you know, const really intense constellation. Its fixed stars were associated with really um, intense or dangerous um, energies and death. And um, so th there's a whole, a whole bunch of mythology around the naming of the nodes here as being called, you know, the head and tail of the dragon as well. Right, right. And there's a lot of symbolism that comes with like the Ouroboros and like the yeah. swan that swallows itself, mm -hmm. where it's just this cycle of the things I produce end up hitting a wall. And then I, I'm stuck in this cycle of just keeping myself here, eating myself. Mm -hmm. And so I do, I do want to say that the nodes can be very malefic. I, I, personally hold that belief that the nodes do have potential for strong maleficence mm -hmm. but I think that a lot of what the nodes do are it's gonna kind of be like a test of your security and your stability because with as the nodes travel backwards through a house they're going to rearrange and give you a different perspective of everything that any any planet knows about that house mm -hmm. and so there's kind of this question of, is it destruction or is it just extremely different? And that frightens me. And I feel like that's a question that has to be answered by each individual, like each person, you know? Like, do you have the ability to ride the wave and take what's being thrown at you and the cycle of 
Rahu creating and throwing things into your reality or Kato destroying and swallowing things, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it kind of just makes me think about, you know, literally, like you said, the Ouroboros, which is the snake eating its own tail. Um, you know, how this dragon or Draco or the nodes are, you know, eating up the sun and the moon. And so just in the same way as they transit through our houses, they're going to eat up and take away things into our lives, but also bring in new opportunities. And so that's why eclipses are such powerfully transitional and, you know, in some ways destined times in our lives because of the, you know, the destiny and the, you know, the visceral feeling of what an eclipse looks like what is happening astronomically it's so out of the ordinary that we can't not acknowledge how that cycle that is tied into you know when that really intense phenomenon is happening is going to be directly linked to you know something changing in our lives and so you can look at you know your life through sorrow series and we'll talk about how that you know all works and breaks down but the eclipses are the gateway into seeing how those major transitional shifts happen in our lives really right exactly and then like the as you were saying earlier like kind of synthesizing our two ideas with like the luminaries and like having that taken from the ancient people being so frightening mm -hmm. is like this is a test of your security mm -hmm. like are you do you have things set up so that the sun will rise again tomorrow or will your sun be swallowed and will you have to build a new light and that's kind of the question that eclipses will ask you and i think that that's also part of the reason why um the nodes are commonly said to be exalted it with the north node in gemini and the south node in sagittarius because they are just incredibly movable signs just in nature and they throw themselves curveballs like <laughs> keeping it real and so like you have this um you have this desire to learn and consume that comes a lot with Gemini and then with um, Mercury and that desire to know and be aware of and the questions of why. But then you also have this idea of like spreading knowledge and teaching and sharing experiences with people that comes with Sagittarius. And I feel like that kind of speaks to what happens with Ketu. Like if if Rahu is creating things and bringing a ball into your, a ball of energy into your life, by the time it reaches Ketu, you're going to have understood that weight in the mass that comes with it and disperse it, whether it's just into your environment or you're going to share it with people around you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, I think the other interesting thing I thought of um, with the whole exaltation of the nodes um, because that was something that kind of came along a little bit later too. Um, they weren't originally a part of the exaltation scheme. They kind of came in in the medieval period. So around like the late, you know, maybe it was like 8th century, 9th century. Um, and the whole idea that kind of came to me about that was, you know, the marriage of the sun and the moon in alchemy is called the, you know, alchemical marriage. It's the divine union of opposites, the sun and the moon in perfect, you know, like we talked about balance and proportion, it's perfectly aligned. And so it has this really malefic connotation with the events that will happen. Um, but on the other hand, it's about the union of opposites, which is ultimately the goal of the great work, which is, you know, what we're here to accomplish on earth. And so 
what I thought of was in the tarot, the card that corresponds with the alchemical marriage is the lovers, um, which if you know that card, it's about the union of opposites of the male and the female, the dark and the light. And the lovers card is ruled by Gemini because Gemini is the sign all about dualities and oppositions and the union and merging of those dualities. And so the North Node's exaltation in Gemini, I think, speaks to Rahu's nature and, you know, Ketu's nature as well in Sag to work with those divisions and ultimately, I, I think, to cause division just as strongly as it works to, you know, create union and that alchemical marriage in people's lives. I think it's destructive and constructive in both those ways. Yeah, I agree 100%. And, you know, um, in Bruno and Luis Huber's book, uh, Moon Node Astrology, if anybody can access it, I recommend it. It's a great read. Um, they actually discuss how the ascendant-descendant axis and the nodal axis is very similar because it's the intersection of two planes and only one of them is tangible. Like we cannot really keep track of the nodal axes, but we can see eclipses mm -hmm. and that is how we can track that. And so you get the same kind of idea when you think about the ascendant and the descendant with one coming into being and then one being swallowed and going under the earth. You kind of get that same idea with the with the nodes where you have one that is putting things out and one that is bringing things in or maybe it's 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 doing more action. And then you have the south node that is understanding, reflecting, keeping track of things like that. And you can kind of, I, I, I know that that was kind of a splotchy description, but I think that you can understand what I'm saying with that. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, um, next, I was just wondering if I have like a, a little description of the nodes from Al-Kabisi, who was a medieval astrologer. Um, do, you wanna, do you want me to read some of that or... Yeah, go for it. I'm all ears. Okay. Um, so Al-Kabisi wrote, um, and also the North Node or the head of the dragon was called Caput Draconis, which is just Latin for head of the dragon. And then tail of the dragon is Cauda Draconis. So that's just what he's saying here. Um, Caput Draconis is masculine. So the North Node. It's similar to a benefic star and its nature is composed of the nature of Jupiter and Venus. This means the kingdom and the benefit and wealth. And some said that its nature is augmentative because when it's with the benefics, it increases their benefit. And when it's with the malefics, it enhances their evil. The years of its fedaria is three. The caudadraconis truly is evil. Its nature is composed of the nature of Saturn and Mars. It means degradation and loss and poverty. And some said that its nature is diminutive because when it's with benefits, reduces their benefit. And when it's with malefics, dec yeah, decreases their evil. So it was said that caput, the head, is benefic when it's with benefics and malefic with malefics. Now, cauda is malefic with the benefics, right? Because it's losing the benefic nature. Cauda, also known as the south yeah. node, also known as ketu. Right. And benefic with the malefics, because the decreasing node is going to decrease the malefic nature. So that's a good thing. 
and the years of his Fredari R2. So yeah, there's a few interesting things there. The first one, like we said, the you know the Indian astrologers really took the whole malefic nature, um, you know, kind of full on with both ends of it, and that also weaved into the mythology of of Rahu and Ketu um, that they had in their um, you know mythological pantheon. But also, you know, stemming from just the medieval lens and even the Hellenistic lens, they were more neutral in the sense that the ascending nodes function was just generally to increase because that is just where we see the moon, you know, raise up above the sun and that the decreasing node or K2 or Kauda Draconis, the tail of the dragon was just to decrease. And so obviously with either benefic or malefic planets on each node, it's going to be better or worse. Um, the other interesting thing here is that he brings up the Ferdaria, which is a medieval Time Lord system. And uh, this is really interesting because up until this point, only the seven traditional planets would serve as Time Lords. And Time Lords are basically the planets that govern certain periods of our lives and activate our placements within our chart um, at certain intervals for certain lengths of time based off of their condition in our charts. And what's fascinating and amazing here is that this is the first time that we see the nodes uh, being integrated into the Time Lord system. So now Rahu and Ketu can serve as Time Lords um, for different periods of our life. And particularly for the method of Fredaria at the age of 70 is when there's going to be this really significant spiritual dimension that is going to, you know, add in this element of our, our destiny or, you know, an eclipsing of our fate in some kind of way. So that was a really interesting addition that happened to uh, the Time Lord systems, for sure. That is very fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. I, I, I will have to do a little experimenting with that, see what I can find out about my grandpa. <laughs> yeah, age 70, day or night chart, doesn't matter. Age 70, right. the notes take yeah. over. Um, so something I wanted to mention in, in one of Chris Brennan's episode podcasts, he welcomed Ronnie Dreyer onto there. And I haven't, I haven't seen that episode in a very, very long time, but I do remember her mentioning. So this isn't an exact quote, but she did mention the fact that some Indian traditions associated Saturn with Rahu and Mars with Ketu, which I thought was very interesting because that's just a difference between um, the like the medieval tradition that we had here with Alcadiz. Yeah. And then um, she she had a lot of really, really good points, but she also had she also shared that um, a lot of astrologers and particularly Indian astrologers do not take into account aspects with Ketu mm -hmm. and the South Node because Rahu is the head of the dragon and the head of the dragon has eyes. And so the whole idea of aspects are transmitting light and passing things between. So in order to do that, one of the key things that you needed was sight. Sight is a key word when talking about aspects. And since Ketu is the tail of the dragon without eyes, it can't see. And so I just thought that was very fascinating and worth mentioning. Um, definitely something that you might want to see and mess with with your own personal practice. If you feel like South Node Ketu aspects apply and are relevant, then go for it. You might find out that they're not so relevant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really an interesting idea too, because we've seen like three different levels of this where it was like from the Hellenistic period, you know, 
they don't have light, the nodes don't emit light, so they can't receive light, so they don't make aspects at all. But then, you know, with the and Indian tradition, they, what were you going to say? I, I will say the earlier Indian traditions were like that also. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, like you said, so then the evolution to just, you know, the head of the dragon having aspects. And then now in evolutionary astrology, all aspects to the nodes are taken into consideration. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, so, and oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I was, I was just going to say the only other um, piece of the, the idea here is looking at actually if you do have anything square to the nodes so i had another thing worth mentioning before we talk about the bendings um mm -hmm. that a lot of indian astrologers this was also something i learned from ronnie dreyer she has an entire book on vedic astrology if curiosity so prompts you to look into it um but a lot of indian astrologers just look at the house placement of rahu and ketu and they don't really take account in it into account the signs when interpreting natal astrology so i thought that was really interesting too yeah i mean it just kind of makes me think about at least how every two years when the nodes roughly two years when the nodes change sign and therefore you know house in your chart roughly um, depending upon what house system you're using uh, you know, that's going to change up the events that are happening in your life because the eclipses are going to be activating those different houses. So definitely, you know, I do think sign consideration totally will have to tell you something. But yeah, I'm glad you emphasized that too, because house placement of your nodes and on top of that, the house placement of the transiting nodes and the current eclipses are super important. Yeah, definitely. And then also, um, if your nodes end up getting pushed into a different house, depending on the system that you use. Mm. So like, say, so like whole signs, they're in your first house, but then quadrant, they're in your 12th. Mm. That's something I have that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. I do too. Yeah. <laughs> so that's something really interesting and something I have had to do like a lot of thinking about and trying to, and it, it also helps understand the different purpose between your whole signs and your quadrant house chart and so right. that's some food for thought because the nodes see and eclipses and those transits are very very loud mm -hmm. very loud you know you you should be able to find that in your life right and you know Jen's art has an interesting point about that where she says that the whole sign houses are kind of like how the external world sees like our life story, but then our quadrant chart is going to reveal like our lived experience of our chart. So like you might resonate more with your quadrant placements, um, but your whole sign might be how it's perceived that, um, you know, your chart operates. So that's what she teaches. I think it's interesting. It does resonate in my chart, but I just wanted to mention that too, in case any of your nodes change house by house system, just an idea. That is very fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I will say that I think that that's a great distinction, but I personally kind of feel the opposite. Oh. I feel like my whole signs chart has been my lived experience, but my quadrant houses have a lot to do with how I'm perceived. Wow. So, well, you're just yeah. going to have to play with it then. <laughs> right. So some more food for thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I guess with that... <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about the bending of the nodes, though, because you wanted to introduce that and I cut you off. No, no. Yeah, it's all good. Um, so basically the other point, and so this isn't an aspect as much as it's a symbolic point, because if you can think about where the nodes are, 
in relation to the ecliptic, they're going to be at ground zero, right? That's the basis. When the moon goes halfway between them, it's going to be at either the peak or the valley on either side of moving to the ascending or the descending node. So it's on those points that are exactly square or that make like an exact cross to the nodes. Um, those are called the bendings of the nodes because that's really where her orbit is going to be bending and changing direction. Either, you know, she's going to be at the southern bending, which is where she's reaching her lowest and starting to turn up or at the northern bending where she's reached her highest latitude and going to be turning back down. Yeah, and some people um, take into account like exact degree based aspects. Um, others kind of take a sign based approach and the houses that they concern, but typically it's um, an area of tension and somewhere you need to be on your feet, somewhere you have to adapt pretty regularly to changes occurring. It might be unstable for you or anything like that. And a lot of the themes that we've talked about with Rahu and Ketu seem to appear even with the bendings of the nodes. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I know in evolutionary astrology, like if you have a planet that's on a bending or square to the nodes, um, it can kind of be interpreted like it's something that's putting a pause on your journey, like it's something that's not functioning properly or it's holding you back, like either from your growth or from your past, right, the north or the south node. But the other interpretation, which is really along the same exact line of how evolutionary astrology interprets it, it's just in a slightly different context. Um, you know, Vedius Valens, the, you know, one of the greatest fathers of the Hellenistic tradition that was transmitted, he said, you know, to never um, begin an event when the moon was like conjoined to or in a square with the node, so on a bending. And I kind of see it as, you know, if the north node is about the increase in manifestation of things, and then the decrease, and then the south node is the decrease of that, if you have something squaring it that's kind of holding both ends in a pause you know nothing is coming into being but nothing is going so if you're doing like an election for when you have to pick a date to do something important or for a trip or for whatever for instance if the moon is squaring the nodes there's this like apprehension and pause in something coming to fruition as you want it to so the bendings are kind of this pause on things you know coming into existence or going out it's kind of like this null, null zone yeah definitely and i'm you you said that very very well yeah um yeah, yeah. I, mean, I just brought it up because it's similar interestingly enough to how an evolutionary astrologer would interpret a planet at the bendings really mm -hmm. it's something on pause yeah mm -hmm. and that applies to the like natal context like very very well and the evolutionary context mm -hmm. definitely me thinking about my planet bending my nodes right now of all planets I'm, I'm right with you yeah <laughs> I have a natal bending so that one's fun too yeah we both do mm. so one of the other factors of looking at the nodes that we haven't talked about yet is looking at uh whether your nodes are direct or retrograde and this also brings into question um whether to use what's called the true node or the mean node. So the true node is the actual precise astronomical calculation of where the nodes are right now. This, however, wasn't the calculation that was used throughout the tradition because the nodes actually have a pretty erratic movement. And so for centuries, millennia, 
astrologers were actually calculating without realizing it the mean position because they never had a way to analyze the really minute movements that the nodes were doing. So this question of do I use the mean node or the true node? I use both personally for thousands of years. Astrologers have used the mean node. Um, and basically this point, it won't incorporate all of the slight retrogrades and direct motions that, they, that the nodes have. So it'll just be a clean sweeping backwards motion of the nodes through your chart if you're using the mean node or the average node. But the true node is going to include all of those really small direct retrograde, direct retrograde, direct retrograde stations that happen along the way. Yeah, and those direct and retrograde stations are like super funky. Yeah. Um, they happen really often. Right. It, it switches between the two like so much. Mm -hmm. We talked about um, we talked about the outer planets retrograde cycles looking like a seismograph. Mm -hmm. This is like broken seismograph it's like like all over the place yeah so um we we tried finding information about this like online and through like other astrologers and other sources and neither of us could find any information on when the nodes change and when the nodes switch from direct to retrograde or vice versa mm -hmm. and why and so we did some looking through and some different charts and transits to try and find this pattern and we found some different factors but if there are more things that we just don't know about if there's maybe sources on that that anyone can recommend yeah i would appreciate that because it was definitely interesting to look through mm -hmm. um yeah so Every time either one of the luminaries can join either of the nodes, they're going to change direction. Mm -hmm. And then, um, did you want to do the other one? Sure, yeah. So okay. it's just interesting because like the moon will hit a node, you know, every half a month, so every two weeks. So that's happening often, but then it's also happening two more times in between those two. So it, for the moon to do one rotation of the zodiac there's actually going to be four distinct points where they switch direct retrograde direct retrograde and as i was just like i was on my uh software and i just hit um like um move the chart and so i was watching the moon just move through and i noticed that there was points that it was hitting and that it was slowly changing where it would hit one of these invisible points and then the nodes would change. And then when it, it would hit a node and then they would change and then it would hit the point opposite that invisible point and it would change again. But I noticed that they weren't like exactly opposite. Like it was something moving, like it was this axis that was moving. And after watching it rotate and rotate and go around enough, I realized that it was just the points that are square to the sun. So this just like blew my mind because thinking about, you know, the sun is going to be here, it's going to square two points on either side 90 degrees away from it. And you know, that's moving with the yearly cycle of the sun. And that's moving really, you know, pretty quickly too, compared to, you know, how fast the nodes are moving. So there's this other really dynamic component to the moon hitting this invisible point that is square to the sun, and that changing um, the direction of the nodes. So whenever there's a first quarter moon, 
they switch. Whenever there's a third quarter, last quarter moon, they switch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if you have that placement natally too, like that right. says something about your chart and your nose. Right. And you have to think of this karmic change. Yeah. This like shift in direction. Mm-hmm. And so the mean node will never be retrograde. And so that is something that you do kind of lose that just like or, actually. So it will never be direct. Yeah. I meant, yeah, thank right. you. Thank you. Yeah. No, It'll no, but yeah. So that is something that you lose, just a little bit of detail that is not there. Mm. But um, yeah, it's so fascinating because if you just watch it and like how often they station, like it doesn't look like there's really any rhyme or reason to it. There's different like numbers of dates. Like sometimes it'll go like four days before it changes. Other times it'll be like 10 to 12. Right. And then like we also have like during eclipse season, like sometimes those nodes will change directions like six or seven times because it's like the moon activates right. it, then the, the moon sun activates and, yeah. it. Right. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. It's such an interesting time, especially when the sun conjoins the north node, because and I don't want to say 100 percent on this because I'll need to track it a bit more. But from pretty sure what I was looking at was when the sun is actually conjoined the north node. And that squaring those squaring points actually become the bendings of the nodes. Um, that's actually when the nodes will spend the most amount of time direct instead of their usual retrograde motion. So it's just kind of interesting to think about how when the sun is on that, you know, increase of lunar point, the nodes are mostly heading antithetically to their normal direction. So having the sun near a node is just this huge switch up in the normal progression of, um, you know, the, the incoming and going of things, which the nodes really show. Right, right. The nodes 100% speak to like the influx and the dispersion of things. I, right. I, I really, and with the whole idea of like solar versus, or diurnal versus nocturnal energy and the like doing versus receiving and the giving versus taking right. that you get with that. If you want to hear more about that, we have an episode on it titled Sect. Um <laughs> But the analogy that I use for the nodes or that I came up with for the nodes, um, this isn't old, um, is that the North Node speaks, if, if you look at, if you, the North Node is going to speak to what we consume in our lifetime. And if it, consumption not in the way that we always think about it. Mm-hmm. And so like, let's use the idea of food. We consume food and the kind of food you eat, the amount of food you eat, all of these different things will impact your overall energy level, your mood, how often you're going to have to eat again and things like that. And that will impact your actions and how you act and what you do, how long you can do these things. And when you think of the ideas of food and consumption, you can overconsume, you can become addicted, and that can kind of tie into these themes of destruction that we regularly hear about. But then when you think about Ketu, Ketu is going to concern how you digest this food. 
Like, do you integrate these things? Do they kind of just hit this pit at a bottom of a well where they're just kind of swept under the rug and you don't acknowledge it again? Is it going to be dispersed? Is it going to be enacted? So I think that the like food and digestion analogy makes a lot of sense with your actions um, being your, and the things that you put out into your environment kind of coming from the relationship between the two. Yeah, yeah, no, that was really well said. Um, I think just that idea of, you know, the moon and the North Node, that it's like this coming into physicality and manifestation. So like for your, you know, internal body, it's literally like the consumption of food. And then K2 being the disruption, disruption, the digestion, the breaking up of that internally is also symbolic of the spiritual process that happens along with that because Rahu acts in this way to throw us into materiality, make us distracted and lost in the illusion of the physical world. And then K2 comes into, you know, rebirth us into a greater awareness or a different perspective on things so that we can, you know, put our minds and our intentions toward um, something else, towards something greater than the illusion of physicality. Right, exactly. And then like bringing back into the picture, like the Ouroboros who's like trapped, like consuming himself. Right. It's like, are you going to purge yourself of these things? Mm-hmm. And like digestion, I just feel like is a good analogy. I don't no, know. It, it, it totally is. I mean, just not, to call, not to call Kidu like poop. no but like it is a great analogy like like you said the ouroboros you know it's it's all the same idea yeah definitely Mm -hmm. um did you have any closing notes do i think that this might be a good spot to wrap up yeah um i just think you know pay attention to the nodes pay attention to their transits um you know definitely think about the houses they're in you know on a general level do you see the north node in that house as like it's increasing those themes or do you see it as it's throwing you into you know chaos in that direction and it's making you lost in the illusion of the themes of that house in your life in your in your physical world um or do you feel like a spiritual impulse to head towards that direction you know from the evolutionary perspective on the same side of the coin you know thinking about k2 are you trying to get rid of those things is there a decrease of those topics in your life or is there an impulse to, you know, use the themes of those topics in that house to, you know, illuminate yourself? Or, um, you know, do you have some desire to get rid of what's going on there? You feel like it's holding you back in some way. There's different ways where, you know, these interpretive guidelines about the nodes can kind of help, you know, build different stories around the narrative that's trying to be told in your chart. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. They're, they're very fascinating. Mm-hmm. They, they're they're quite the archetype and it's one of, one of my favorite things about like prepping for this episode was just how contradictory everybody was I know so what your personal experience is probably will not resonate with what you hear about the nodes across the board mm-hmm. and like that's okay and I mean there's a lot of things about astrology that are like that but I just thought that was super like relevant with this topic in specific Mm -hmm. yeah and I guess the last thing I wanted to say is and um you know maybe we should have mentioned it earlier but like all the hype everyone's making about eclipses right now and it's so dangerous and don't do anything and don't do magic you know you're gonna manifest something horrible or 
you know, people that are saying, you know, use the energy of this North Node eclipse to, you know, bring things in, you know, they're unpredictable, right? We, it's when the sun doesn't even have, even have control. It's, it's when, you know, in the Hindu mythology, it was about when these demons snuck into the picture and were receiving this like divine, the Amrita, the elixir. And um, it's kind of the eclipses are going to really, you know, bring unexpected and, and change into your, unexpected changes into your life. So, it's not necessarily the time where, you know, you want to declare something with as much, you know, confidence, as much as it could be about a time for you to be able to, you know, prepare for whatever is going to happen and just surrender in a way. Um, that's kind of how I take eclipse seasons. Like, I'm just going to surrender. I have a plan. If it gets shaken up, I'm going to be okay. But also sometimes eclipses will literally launch you towards your destiny. So you have to have that hope of mind, glimmer of hope in your mind too. Right, right, exactly. They're but very, you, go sorry. ahead. Well, I was just going to say, if you want to try to figure out how it's going to play out, look into the sorrow series. And so that yeah. will kind of bring us into our next episode on eclipse cycles. Yeah, definitely. Um, so stay tuned. Um, don't forget to like and subscribe. Oh. Um, we have all of our other social media platforms linked in the caption below. We've got our websites, um, our like joint Mercuranians account and our personal accounts. So check it out. Contact any of us at any point in time. Let us know your experiences of the nodes in the comments or I don't know, your opinions of the nodes. So you guys have a great one. Happy stargazing. And happy eclipse yesterday. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Um, we'll see well, you again. Whole season. The, yeah, happy eclipse season. Um, yeah. But also we'll see you again before the eclipse in Scorpio. So yeah. Yeah, happy eclipse season. Um, um, I'm trying to think. Let's hope there's no... Let's hope we don't have a need for Noah's Ark again. Because um, <laughs> it's the end of the world, as right. we see on pop astrology. Venus yeah. and Jupiter are never going to be the same again. <sighs> yeah, like, everybody just take a breath. I hope you had an amazing day yesterday. I hope it wasn't too bad. I bet yeah. you had a great day. So it's mm -hmm. all good. We're going to breathe. Yeah. We're going to get through eclipse season. As we're gonna we get always the solstice. do. We're going to get to summertime. It's going to be great. Yes. Okay. Alrighty, and, uh, well, Mercuranians out. All right. See you guys soon. Bye bye. Bye bye.